Today I got to sit down with Tim Nudd, a former college friend who now has gone on to great things in advertising. So let's hear about him on DaleWileyShow.com. Do I have my old friend Tim here? Dale, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing pretty well, thanks. Well, that sounds fantastic. And I thought I would invite my friend Tim Nudd on the show. And I just really want to talk about Wash U and advertising and everything else. <laughs> sounds perfect. It's great to hear your voice. It's been a long time. Yes, it's been many years. And so yeah. anyway, I really, of course, we met on the student paper. But I really wanted to start by talking about not only the student paper, but then also Herb Metz, <laughs> the professor Herb, Herb Metz. Metz. Oh the legend of Herb Metz. <laughs> yes. And so tell me about being on that class. Well, I've never had a teacher or even or known of a teacher who was quite like Herb. What was he, probably 80 years old? He by probably the time, had to uh, be more than 80. I would say he was a maybe, small man. More. He was a small man. He was a an absolute uh, obsessive when it came to theater. Uh, right? I took several classes with him. Um, and he was the most you know passionate dude that, that I ever took a class with ever, in high school or college or wherever. And right. God, he was such a character. I mean, he had all these stories dating back to the fifties of going to premieres of Tennessee Williams plays in New York. Right. And the funny thing, funny thing about Herb, of course, was that he would tell the same stories over and over. And he, he had a lot of stories. <laughs> if he took his class more than once, or if he took a few classes from him, you'd, you'd hear the same stories over and over, but right. you know, they were good stories. So uh, he was fantastic. I mean, the whole theater department uh, at Wash U at the time that we were there was it was a fun place to be. It was it was small, had some great teachers, and you know it was uh, pretty remarkable. Just you know, I mean, Herb taught us uh, the you know the the, the classics of theater. We right. would read them, and and you know, I took a whole class just on Tennessee Williams from Herb. Yes, I know that was, was one I took. Yeah, that was an incredible class, and and then I think he he taught one earlier that i'm sure you took as well um i know i think he had a few different sessions of it but it was sort of an intro to theater and and what a great you know what a great person to teach that because he was oh, very yeah. broadly appealing and uh it was just so much fun and, and and the stories he would tell hilarious i mean i remember there was i can't remember what play it was it was like a big premiere on broadway you remember the the story where he oh, yeah. couldn't get a seat <laughs> get tell a seat. it i don't even want to tell it because it wouldn't do it justice but uh, the way he told it was incredible. He would build suspense like a master. And uh, he was told that, that there were no seats. So essentially, right. <laughs> he ended up going and renting a wheelchair from some <laughs> yes. place on the road. And, and he came in and he said, oh, there's, there seems to be spots in the, in the, in the wheelchair section. And he, <laughs> right. he was able to, to finagle a spot um, pretending to be uh, disabled, which is, I suppose is not funny now, but it was right. hilarious at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I would think that he was so non-PC. And then let me also add the story that he told about the people that he was so dark that they thought he was black. There was no way that oh God, anyone right, right, ever right. thought he was black. Not a chance. <laughs> oh, my Lord. That was hilarious. He also, uh, I think he, he prompted some complaints from the women in the, in the class, too, right. the way he described 
the way he described uh, <laughs> particularly the characters in a streetcar named Desire, as, yes. I, as I recall. Yes. Uh, he was not, uh, he sort of had, had his fifties. Uh, he was, he was a bit stuck in the fifties for sure. Definitely. And the deal is I'm not sure it was even the fifties. I think it may have been before that. May have been earlier. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> and but, so, you know, just I'm, as a, as a guy with, with a passionate out, outlook. And I mean, as, as far as getting people interested in theater, he was, he was fantastic. Somewhere I even have a copy of his, his, um, the play that he wrote. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. That's you know, he was also a connection to Harold Ramis. He talked about Harold Ramis a lot. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I remember the other story Herb told was that one day he was looking around his apartment. He lived alone in uh, somewhere in the West End in St. Louis. And uh, suddenly he realized one day that all his furniture faced the same way. Really? That story. And, no, and I he, heard he, that one. He realized he had set up his apartment as though it were uh, a theater show. Okay. You know, like everything faced <laughs> the audience. <laughs> I don't know if that was true or not, but it was a good story. Well, and then I also mentioned that we had a professor, Jim Jim Dickinson, or Jim Nicholson. Jim so tell me about him. So he was, so where, whereas Herb would teach sort of the classics, um, Jim was a playwright and, right. and produced quite a few plays, and he taught us uh, playwriting. So we would, you know, we, we would have these wonderful classes, uh, hour-long sessions twice a week where we would bring in stuff that we had written and uh you know we would we would uh, the various classmates would would read it and uh jim was amazing jim jim had produced a handful of plays his stuff was pretty out there it was uh, out he, there. he wrote a play called he, he wrote a play called uh beyond here or monsters and i remember he gave me the script once and he, he had it produced somewhere and uh, he always said, well, it's hard to get this play produced because the, fir the first scene is kind of difficult to stage. And I was like, oh, OK. So I went and read <laughs> it. And it turns out um, a guy uh, standing in the middle of the stage is suddenly shot with like 20 arrows. Right. And yes. falls down dead. And I, and I understood why suddenly uh, a director might have right. a hard time uh, reproducing that. Uh, he, pre he produced a play at WashU when we were there also, which was pretty cool it was called uh blue moon rising i'm sure right. you saw it remember um, that very very cool uh and he was a great teacher too i mean he would he would really get uh deep into whatever you were doing and he was he was a big advocate and we had really fun classes and and, and i remember uh, my last year when when i was editor of the paper uh i had a I had sort of a you know it was it was a fifth year that i was actually on and right um, i was able to take a, a course with jim uh, that kind of combined playwriting and acting. So oh. I would write, I would write uh, stuff and, and Bo Sasser was in this class too. And a few others, yes. uh, uh, Drash was in the class too. Right. And, uh, and we would, we would all write, you know, we would be working on plays for a whole semester and, uh, we would have six or seven kids from the acting, uh, acting program come in for the, for the, uh -huh. for the whole hour. And they would, they would actually act out our stuff. Um, which was amazing to have these, you know, these kids who were much better actors than we were just doing table reading. <laughs> yes. Um, just kind of, you know, take on our work and that was super fun. And then I remember there were, there was that contest, uh, where uh, a play would get produced or a couple right. plays would get produced every, yeah. every year, which was cool. And I know one act that Mike Holmes, uh, wrote, 
was produced right. one time and it was just a it was a great environment it was like a it was like a just a place to experiment and play around with with the writing that we were doing and uh i was pretty obsessed with theater at the time you know i was super into like shepherd and pinter and right harold churchill and you know all that stuff and it was really really cool we read all those plays and and we you know got to be around a lot of that stuff you know and mm-hmm. also of course, student life was what we were best known for or how we became the best. You know, we got to meet a lot of people there, too. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. You uh, you had a great run with uh, Cadenza, which Cadenza. was amazing. <laughs> and, you know, we had favorite. all these people mm-hmm. around us, you know, like Sam Moyne and, and, you know, all these amazing people around us and the, the great student life controversy and everything else. It was a very interesting time. It was. Yeah. I mean, early nineties, the, uh, the all country scene coming out of St. Louis was pretty interesting to write about. Definitely. Uh, And then, you know, we had the president, the presidential debate came to town. We had a lot going on in the the early nineties. I remember we, we put out the first ever all full color issue of yes, which, uh, (laughs) And then we got criticized because we put uh this was ninety two, so I think we, we put uh Bill Clinton at the top of the cover. We we profiled the three debaters, which was Clinton, uh Bush Senior and, and Ross Perot. And uh being the, the you know, the lefty college kids that we were, we we uh <laughs> yes. we, gave, we gave the top of the uh front page to Clinton instead of instead of the sitting president and uh as I remember that that issue won some kind of award, but wh- whoever gave us the award um, definitely mentioned that we put, we should have put Bush at the top. <laughs> yes. Well, it was, there was also an issue about was maybe Bush below the fold or something. There was some there was some issue about placement yeah, as he, well. He, was. he definitely was. I mean, looking back, um, our bias was probably too evident, but it was a fun <laughs> yes. it was a fun time. I mean, we got to sit in the hall for that. This would have been, you know, fall of a very of cold hall and, and just being a very cold hall. I just remember sitting there and, you know, they needed a moment of silence for to test the audio. And it was just it was crazy just sitting there. And I know Augie Bush was was in the crowd and he stood up and sort of he had made that whole thing possible. And uh-huh. it was a charged atmosphere, you know, and it was just like Danforth really did a lot of good to get those debates there. And it was. It was a good time to be at WashU. Definitely. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. Yeah. Danforth was uh I always I always liked that guy. I felt like he, he had the a good outlook and he was he was a he was a friend to the students. Was, I really thought know, that he was a good I, 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 chancellor. Yeah, I agree. And, it and was so a fun, again it was a fun time there. then at some point you moved to New York and you lived with another WashU guy who went on to some bigger fame and that was Sarsgaard, Peter Sarsgaard. Peter Sarsgaard, yeah. Well, we lived together in St. Louis um for about a year. Uh, okay. so he graduated a year a year before I did. He, right. he graduated uh in 93 and we lived uh-huh. together that summer uh after graduation, the summer of 93. We were on a little we were in a little place on Skinker Boulevard. Uh-huh. And uh and so he left and uh, we were pretty, you know, we were buddies. And so he moved to New York in the fall of 93. I, I stuck around in St. Louis until the summer of 94. Um, and he 
yeah, he ended up living with his parents in uh, in Fairfield, Connecticut, for for those nine months. And then when I when I finally got to New York, we we found an apartment together uh, in Brooklyn, and we lived there for two years. And that was a, that was a fun experience too, because he was sort of and when I when I arrived, he he uh, he was just working in a camping store on Canal really? Street. He would he would bike from he would bike from Park Slope to uh, to Canal Street. It was called Tenton Trails. It was this like hole in the wall camping shop. He was he was a big outdoors outdoorsy guy, okay. and he always wanted to work in a camping store. So he was he was a, you know he was a struggling actor, and to, to make make bills, he would uh, he would do this funny little job at a camping shop. And uh, I, I was, you know, th th his big break came, I want to say it was the spring of 95, probably. He he was in a play uh, off-Broadway written by Horton Foote, and it was, okay. called, it was called Laura Dennis. And we went and saw it, and it was, you know, we all thought, you know, we, we of course, had no idea that he would sort of blow up into this uh, renowned actor right. today. But, <laughs> But uh, I remember, you know, we were living together, and he got he got cast in this part, and he was he was all excited, and and uh, of course, you know, we, we uh, my friends and I um, went to see it, and it was I'll always remember it was the same night that uh, that Ben Brantley, the, the New York Times critic, uh, theater critic, happened to be there. Really, and uh, and Pete, I can't remember the role. I don't I don't know the play very well, but uh, yeah, at one point he's he's called upon to sort of cry uh at you know at like you know without any sort of prompting he just has to he has this emotional moment sort of late in the play where he has to start crying and uh he was so good at it and he he would sort of i mean it was incredible the uh the waterworks um that he was he managed to to do it was it was pretty remarkable uh pretty intense scene and he did a pretty crazy job with it and uh the next day, I remember there was a Brantley had his review. Maybe it was the day after uh, Brantley had his review in uh, in the Times, and it said, you know, towards the bottom, it said, you know, Peter Sarsgaard with uh, with a display of, you know, incredible emotional intensity you know, <laughs> is uh, is is a uh, one to watch or something like this. You know, really? it emerges as a, as a actor to watch, and uh, it's funny because he used to sleep until you know noon or so and okay. uh i remember i would i would have to get up to go to work and uh the morning that that review came out in the times and this is i don't know if the times is still you know this important to the theater scene as it was but right by the time i got up there was there was six or seven messages from agents on really? on our answer phone already which was inc which was crazy and uh you know, he, he very soon after that signed with an agent and, and very, very soon after that, I think the, the whole summer or, or at least, you know, three or four weeks of the summer of 95, he he wasn't around because he traveled down to Louisiana to shoot yeah. uh, his first movie, which uh, Dead Man Walking with Sean Penn. Uh -huh. And he he doesn't have a big role in that, but he's 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 the uh, one half of the couple uh, that ends up the Sean Penn. Uh, murders in the, uh -huh. in the opening scene of that movie and uh interesting it's funny to look back and knowing his theater background because the the woman uh, missy yeager who played his girlfriend in that film um was the title character in laura dennis the the horton foot play that he really? was in so they sort of had both been in play and they both ended up in louisiana doing this movie with sean penn and 
it was just a funny, a funny, it was great to be able to watch him, uh, you know, sort of grow into this, uh, acting role. And, you know, he came back from Louisiana. I remember him kind of being a little ticked off that, uh, that, that, that Sean Penn had kind of roughed him up a bit, apparently during, <laughs> during the, uh, during the shooting of this, of this scene that he had had with him. Like, I don't know, if, you know, it was a, it was a murder scene and he, he, uh, I guess Sean, uh, Sean Penn, um, Sort of enjoyed the uh, uh, pushing Peter into the dirt a few times. Uh, you know, but total. if you had a Sean Penn experience and you didn't get roughed up, that'd be the more interesting story. You know, he, I That's think right. that he probably had a lot of run-ins. Be my guess. Yeah, he probably did. But uh, I've kept in touch with Pete. We we uh, we we've played word, words with friends for a few years, and <laughs> it's funny. It's funny to reconnect with them now. You know, I. I, uh, we lived in this tiny little apartment on 16th Street, uh, way out in South Park Slope, and uh, we had trouble honestly making our rent. We had a we had a, a railroad apartment. I had to walk through his bedroom to get to my bedroom, um, and you know he would he would have trouble making the rent a lot of a lot of months. And then you know, ten years later, he's he's buying a he and his wife are buying a you know five million dollar brownstone, uh, right? Just a few blocks <laughs> from where he and I. But I did. I, I saw him recently. Well, it wasn't that recently. It was a few years ago. He he uh, he did a version of Hamlet where he was he played the title character. Uh, I want to say it was either Signature or Second Stage uh, in New York, and we had a nice uh, we had a nice catch up uh, at that point. And we we went to uh, we went to a hotel bar kind of nearby the nearby the theater after the show, and had a nice chance to catch up with him. Um, he's doing he's doing well. Well, definitely. And, you know, I'm going to catch up with Barry Levy later on this afternoon. So it's a good watch. Yeah, that's amazing. Day, definitely. Yeah. Barry, uh, another one of our playwriting uh, colleagues from Jim Nicholson's class who definitely. wrote, uh, he wrote Vantage uh, a Point. Hollywood movie yeah. a few years back. Vantage Point. Yeah, which, uh, uh, Vantage really Point. Cool idea. I, I like the fact that it's uh, sort of an experimental idea. You know, that movie, I, 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 I saw it a long time ago. I think it came out probably 10, 12 years ago, but. Right. Um, I, I like Barry a lot and I, I would always enjoy his, his, uh, play, playwriting scripts and for our class. And I always, which, uh, you know, I got to sit out with him a couple of years ago in LA and he's a nice guy and it was very nice to catch up with him and definitely knows a lot about the business. Definitely. But you've gone yeah. on to an interesting career in ads. And so tell me about your definite, you know, it's a left turn, but not at all at the same time. You, you've been a creative director and tell me about the mm -hmm. stuff that you've done in ads. Yeah. So, well, when I got to New York, uh, I spent a few years uh, working in uh, energy. So the oil and gas business, which was kind of interesting, uh, kind of doing editing work for, uh, for a very small publisher in that business, and then decided that uh, it wasn't it wasn't exactly the most thrilling uh, subject matter <laughs> in the world. And uh, I'd always been sort of interested in the pop culture sure. you know, appeal of ads. And, uh, what I found interesting about the ad business was, you know, this enormous number of creative people go into that industry. Um, right. It doesn't get written about that much. You know, right. so everybody's writing about music. Everyone's writing about Hollywood. Everyone's writing about, you know, 
acting and, and, and bands and everything. And nobody writes about really the creative product of, of ads because of course, you know, they're not as, they're not considered art. So right. uh, I saw sort of a opportunity to, to kind of be a bigger fish in a smaller pond, if you will, um, writing about the creative people and the creative process in that industry. So I started there and I started out at a, at a trade magazine that I ended up you know, working for, for quite a long time called ad week. Right. And I started out as an editor there and, and, um, by the late nineties, by 99 or so, um, had become a staff writer, was writing exclusively about the creative side of the business as opposed to, you know, personnel or accounts or any of that stuff, which is also a big part of advertising. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've stuck with it pretty much ever since. So it's been, uh, it's been about 20 years now that I've been writing about creative advertising and, um, it's been, it's been interesting. I mean, the, the whole the business has evolved, of course. I mean, when I started the internet was, was, you know, it was not really until the early two thousands, right. A creative canvas for, for ad people. So, you know, managed to write a lot about that over the years. Um, of course, you know, classic commercials. Uh, I've written a lot about that too. Right. Um, and and sort of ended up uh, leading the creative coverage at Adweek for quite a few years, about about eight years. Uh huh. Um, and I did. I actually did two stints at Adweek. I did about six years to start. Uh, then I I took about five years off and and I freelanced uh, for all different types of of uh, places. I, I put in a, about 10 years as a contributing writer for people magazine, which was really its own fascinating uh, world of that celebrity journalism world is, wow. a, is an interesting thing. Um, and I, I went, I did a few years there where I was, I was regularly sort of on the clock for three, four, three, four hours a day of writing for them. And that was, that was cool. I, I did a bit of time at the onion um, when did that you? was after they had moved to New York from, uh, I believe they were in Wisconsin where, where they started. Yeah. Um, which was kind of, fun. and yeah, so I, I, I did some, some time at, at time Inc with, with people and also with life magazine, uh, after, you know, when life was, a uh, it had reincarnated itself as like a parade, like a Sunday supplement magazine for a little while. I worked on life magazine and then I went back to ad week, um, when I moved to Maine. So I moved to Maine in late 2008 and the, uh, the deal was, uh, you know, the Adweek, I, I agreed to go back full time at Adweek on, on the condition that they let me let me move up here to Maine and work. Remotely. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so that's what I did. And so I've been in Maine for, you know, it's going on 12 years and uh, it's been it's been a wonderful uh, place to live and still sort of be tied to New York and have have New York, um, a New York job, essentially. Uh, but, but being able to live up here has been really great. And, uh, about two years ago, I finally left Adweek and I joined the Clio Awards, uh, which are, they're kind of like the Oscars of advertising. It's a, right. you know, it's an awards company. Um, and I started the, a, a new, uh, content platform, um, uh, for the Clios. So it's called Muse and it's, uh, you can get to it at musebyclio.com. And we do a lot of similar stuff as I, as I had been doing, uh, over at Adweek in terms of creative coverage of, of the industry. And, but we're, you know, we're, we're doing a little bit different stuff than, than what I had been doing. We're, we're actually, uh, starting our, uh, our first podcast pretty soon, which is going to be really fun. It's, uh, it's a little different than what's out there, uh, in advertising now. Most of, most of the podcasts in advertising these days are kind of straight you know, Q and A interview styles. Right. Um, 
uh, we're doing, we're building a show that uh, we'll kind of take a look back at classic ads and talk to kind of a range of people who worked on them. Oh yeah. Um, so that's pretty cool. It's going to be more of like a narrative type thing where, you know, I'll, t- I'll tell a through story and we'll be weaving in uh, different bits of audio from people who, who were involved. So um, yeah, pretty, well, ex- pretty excited about I definitely wanted to know when is the period of ads with all somber sounding actors with light piano music going to end? Because that seems to be the, the coronavirus symptom, you know, the, the coronavirus, every ad now has light piano music with very serious people. Is that That's kind of, the- that, that is true. I think I heard it described as disastertizing. and so what what is on the what's on the what's on the table next uh in terms of like what what i'm covering well just anything i mean i'm just thinking about what comes after this crazy crisis that probably none of us saw coming yeah yeah gosh i don't know i mean i think we're still you know it's funny you mentioned the you know, everyone's doing the same ad right now and it's because no one knows what else to do. <laughs> right. right. It's uh we're still in like I hate to say it, but we're still in the really the early stages of this. And Probably everyone's so. you know everyone's feeling a little bit um gobsmacked by the whole thing. Right. Uh, and yeah, I think uh, you know, businesses, uh people's personal lives, everything's kinda up in the air at the moment. Right. So you know, advertisers, at least from an advertising point of view, I mean, advertise not not many advertisers kind of lead the lead the way when it comes to sort of cultural direction, uh, a few, with a few exceptions. But uh, I think m- most companies are, you know, they're they're taking the least risky approach, which is probably, probably so. <laughs> uh, you know, relevant for it's understandable. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I I think you and I could both. Uh, a test. This is like the weirdest time that that we've ever seen in our life. Definitely, sure. yeah. Probably. Go. I mean, I remember. I remember hearing you on NPR for you know after the Super Bowl. You know, so it's kind of cool mm-hmm. to catch up with you and see what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, listen. Uh, the ad, the ad business is a funny business. You know, it's. Uh, I find that I find that the creative folks who work in it are. I find them to be pretty fascinating. I know a lot of people have a problem with advertising and of course it's not, you know, it's not art. It's uh it's artful often when it's at its best. Right. Uh, but of course it, it it wants something from you and therefore it can't really be art. It's not really for you <laughs> in that sense. Yes. Um but you know the creative process in 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 advertising is really pretty cool and and I think there have been some some uh, some things made in the ad world that, that did change the world. Um, sure. Oh yeah, definitely. In the, show, you know, in the show that, uh, that we're going to make, we're going to hopefully dive into some of that stuff. That's cool. Uh, and I, you know, I think brands, you know, in the Trump era, I think, uh, I think it's hard to, to rely on, on government to sort of set the tone in terms of, you know, progressive agendas right. and things like that. Um, I think brands have been kind of stepping into that role a little bit, which is interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I think this crisis will, uh, you know, it'll change business. It'll change advertising. It'll change everything. And I think uh, hopefully it's open. It's, it'll open our eyes 
you know, amid all the pain, it'll, it'll open our eyes to, uh, what's really valuable. And yes, hopefully, you know, as a, as a capitalist system, that's, that's, you know, not doing the planet any favors lately. Um, maybe this will, <laughs> maybe this will help us, uh, you know, turn that around a little bit and who knows? I think, I think we're just, uh, scraping the tip of the iceberg as far as where this thing's head headed. Right. Probably. Who knows? Yeah. So anyway, but it's nice to have the technology to get on the phone with you and be able to spend some time with you. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to catch up with you, Dale. The great audio quality is brought to you by Ringer.com. That's R-A-N-G-R.com slash Dale for a free trial. DaleWileyShow.com.